Hey, Jesse Single. Hey, Katie Herzog. Welcome to our podcast, the only podcast that has a man and a woman conversing at a distance, sometimes touching on a really, really frequently evolving social and political landscape. So uh, what's new with you, Katie Herzog? Oh, man, it's like, it's fucking bullshit, man. It's totally fucking insane. Is it insane, though? Because, you know, I, I don't want to be that guy that's like, oh, let's look at the statistics, right? But statistically, if you look at the statistics, you know, things are actually a whole lot less insane than they were like 10, 20 years ago. Jesse, I'm telling you, it's insane. This is so fucking meta right now, I can't even tell you. Because, right, because you're not Katie Herzog, are you? I'm actually not. Are you Jesse Single? No, and statistically, neither are you. But, yeah, no. Okay, so, yeah, we'll stop doing that accent now, but we've both been listening to a different podcast from our podcast, haven't we, which is called the Blockchain Reported Podcast. that began in March, just as this whole situation was really kicking off and is still unfolding, but um, might talk about that later in the episode, mightn't we? Yeah, and now, let's have the introduction and then pretend to be another podcast. Yes, eat your delivery. music music good morning adam good morning what's what's that you're eating there well it's a rather lovely chlorinated chicken that you can get these days oh wonderful and did you did you make that yourself because i know you're very keen on chlorinating things aren't you no no i mean that's true joe i do like chlorinating things i'll chlorinate swimming pools toast ah uh, puddings but no this is a chlorinated chicken from shropshire farm foods Oh, they're wonderful, aren't they? They're so good, the, the, the Shropshire farm foods you can get these days. They are so good. Listeners may want to be aware that you can actually get a 40% discount at Shropshire Farm Foods with the code DEARADAM at the checkout. That's right. Just just Dear Adam. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Don't accidentally include Joe. <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. They've checked it with me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our long-awaited mailbag episode in which we were just subtly gesturing to another podcast that we admire hugely, which is the podcast that is the podcast of Dear Joan and Jerrica. It is. It has been long-awaited, hasn't it? It's been, and it's been well-awaited to listeners, so well yes. done awaiting. Awaited, long-awaited. It's definitely a mailbag episode. So we can't wait to hear from, from all of you lovely folk who've written in and told us all your problems and your little troubles and your thoughts about satire because we really want to, to help with some of those problems and it's a lot easier when you can't be in the same room than it is to co-edit a pre-recorded interview to use some letters that are real and some that you've completely made up. I wonder if the listeners will be able to guess which ones are made up and which ones are real and we can also we thought do a sort of loving tribute to dear Joan and Jerrica at the same time but at the same time we're not them we're, we're very clear we're not them we're also not Katie Herzog or Jerrica single nobody needs to sue us or say that we've essentially stolen their podcast or anything like that so if we're not Joan and Jerrica and we're not Jesse and Katie who even are we well you're Dr Joe War a senior that's right in 19th century literature and that's right and who are you again I'm Adam James Smith, Dr. Dr. Adam, Adam James Smith. Smith. I'm Dr. Adam James Smith, a senior lecturer in 18th century literature. And together That's we cool. co-direct this podcast, which folks are listening to right now. Block Party. It's called, it's called Smith and War Talk About Satire. The only podcast on the internet where two people named Adam and Joe talk about satire, its form, function, future and history. This in a, a desperate mid, a bid to quantify... In a to amass quantifiable impact for their research, right? 
That used to be true, but in the now times, the unprecedented now times. I'm just looking about. Well, we don't know what's going to happen in terms of the ref or when it's going to no. happen. There may be a time where we need to justify our lives, our research lives metrically. And when that day comes, all the people that have listened to, enjoyed, or are just aware of this podcast are going to be tremendously valuable to us, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> but for now, we're valid just as we are, aren't we? We are. We're just, we're just having interesting conversations about satire. Yeah. Yeah. What's so, wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, do you want to talk about Blockton Reported a little bit? I do. Yeah. Let's, um, let's go been talked about it. Um, and it's also interesting because they, uh, in I think it's episode three, they briefly mention Titania McGrath um, and briefly mention Andrew Doyle. So there's, um, I think that that makes it very clear to me that they've been listening to our podcast. Otherwise, you know, they just wouldn't be aware, would they? So we don't, we're, we're happy about that. But uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. a little, little tie in with Smith and War. What do you think about Blockton Reported? I think it's a really interesting podcast. I, I, it's, um, I think both of us have have sort of binged this in the last couple of weeks haven't we mm. i think it's fascinating it, it, it positions itself as as being quite it's not countercultural, is it it's just it's just describing events but trying to mitigate against media bias and sort of a lot of the group think trends that happen on social media it's, it's trying trying to offer a different perspective obviously i i enjoy the dynamic of two presenters at, at a significant physical distance presumably recording from the houses with minimal technology and not always editing as as slickly as they might do in the normal world. There's something about that that quite appeals, isn't there? It's interesting, isn't it? And as because it began in March, beginning it now is like a real whistle-stop tour of what is, what's actually been quite a long time since all of this began. And also, I feel like, and maybe I'm attributing our podcast with too much impact on my own life as well as everyone else's but I feel like I listen to that and think about that differently having done our podcast and talked about some of the things we've talked about and I think maybe in particular talking to Andrew Doyle because some of the things they say I think are like really chime with me and I find them to be refreshing and direct and I think it's useful to kind of counter some of the things that seem like they're intuitively the right way of thinking and the right way of behaving and sometimes I listen to them and think no that's that's too far I'm not entirely okay with that do you find the same exactly the same yeah I mean I think so obviously theirs isn't a podcast about satire no at one point but it does touch on some of the same ground and I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back later in one of the questions Mm -hmm. that I had a sneak peek at because I think it it's relevant but yeah Yeah. no they're they're not about satire no and at one point Katie says that she doesn't even like comedy but does she she yeah at one point when they're talking about the comedian who keeps masturbating in front of women well I don't like that kind of comedy no nobody does but (laughs) she says she doesn't really like stand-up comedy that much but it's fascinating how that kind of stand-up no, but it's fascinating how many, um, how much crossover there actually is in sort of mm. the topics that we've touched on in our episodes. I think yeah. it's because, particularly in the case of Andrew Doyle, but generally the point of satire is to skewer things or draw attention to, th- to, to things, hypocrisies or inconsistencies, which might not have been generally remarked upon. You know, all sort of mm. trends, trends in thinking or the ways, the ways in which people behave that generally may have been accepted satire is a it has historically been a method for 
for foregrounding those problems, those issues. I mean, when we spoke to Andrew, he was he's in a position where he is satirizing types of behavior and types of discourse, which are generally held, particularly on social media, as the default position. Mm. Um, so, so much like Andrew Doyle, Katie and Jesse find themselves critiquing something that a very vocal cohort of people consider to be, as you just said, what would the word be, like the default position? They, um, they're both or all interested in kind of groupthink, but also I feel like what they have in common, and I hope I'm not misrepresenting anybody here, all three of them, tend to actually have kind of a more optimistic view on the future yeah. um so they will generally they'll quite often make the point like it's not as bad as you think it's not the the statistics don't necessarily bear that out and although things might you know that doesn't mean things aren't bad mm. um, it doesn't mean there isn't work to do mm. they tend to actually see a world that apart from the pandemic and um you know all, all the death and and all the awful things they they tend to kind of be able to discern more hope in some in some ways, which Absolutely. I felt like was was interesting because I think in some ways maybe it helps to have you have to be a bit hopeful. It's satirist, don't you? You have to feel at least intermittently a sense that when you say something or when you satirise something or when you skewer it, that somebody out there will think, yes, it, mm. fuck yeah, that's that's not right, and mm. you have to feel like that about the things you're writing about as a journalist or critiquing or you know exploring mm, you have to have so. some hope that things might get better yeah i think so and another parallel is yes like you when i listen to it oftentimes i'll think well oftentimes i'll agree oftentimes i'll you know i'll think that's a different perspective that i hadn't considered and sometimes they'll go like like you were saying they'll go further than i'm happy with and mm. i'll feel uncomfortable and i'll feel but I suppose that feeling of discomfort is also the feeling of being challenged. And it seems that that is not tolerated as much, generally yeah. speaking. To be made to feel uncomfortable in such a way that might inspire you to, to grow or change or, or defend what you thought in the first place is not as welcome as it might once have been. And that is possibly a challenge for satire. Again, thinking forward to some of the questions we're going to discuss later, mm. when one of the functions of satire historically has been to make people feel uncomfortable so that they can challenge their presumptions or preconceptions yeah and i feel like sometimes there's a a general sense that if something's uncomfortable you don't agree with it the right thing to do is stop up your ears and walk away yeah and i think and sometimes when i've listened to some of blockchain reported there are some moments where i've thought no like this isn't don't dig down into this don't don't do a deep dive on this right now because the appropriate thing is to to feel or to emote or whatever not to try and disprove people's in inverted commas kind of lived experience or whatever and and i think maybe like a few years ago i might have just actually taken that step away and not listened anymore whereas part, perhaps partly because of doing this i would like to think i'm kind of better at listening to listening to people i don't agree with whose every word i don't agree with and that I can think of a number of times over the last year where I've done that. And sometimes I've come away thinking, nope, that's exactly what I thought it would be. And I didn't like it. And sometimes, as with um, Blockton Reported or as with interviewing Andrew Doyle, where some things we agreed with and some things we challenged, 
and but I think that is that's a really good thing. It's interesting, well, isn't it? Because that's kind of obviously when we're not podcasting, our job on the side is as academics. And the main thing that we do when you're writing research or positioning research is you have to read what other people have said and you agree with some of it and you don't agree with some of it. And that's how you position your work in dialogue with other people. That's, yeah. As an academic, that's what you do all the time. You read things that you might not agree with, assess other people's opinions and position yourself in relation to them. But it seems like that's not the case. Um, another thing that I thought about... Um... Blockton reported on a different note was I don't know if you heard one of the early episodes where they said somebody had been in touch with them and said that they'd essentially stolen their podcast because their podcast was called a similar name and that they, they felt they'd sort of been plagiarized in some way by this podcast and I was wondering do you think that could happen to us I think it could I mean there must be other podcasts either that predate us or, or have emerged subsequently that explore satire and war is a really common name where <laughs> it is isn't it yeah well, so do, you, so do you mean specifically, do I think there's a chance yeah. of a podcast that's called like... Smith Party. Or, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. What happens if you Google satire podcast? I don't know. Do you want to try it? I'll do it now, yeah. Keyboard sound effects. Uh, it comes up with... There's a, there's a whole category on the BBC Sounds website oh, BBC called, called Satire, but... Oh no, they're so they're satirical podcasts. They're not podcasts about satire, right? Okay. But things like Breaking the News and Tom Tom Neen and his Not All Men. And then the only other ones that come up is this one apparently that's come up called Dude Splaining. Nobody likes onions. There's not. There's nothing. There's nothing coming up. Okay, so we're probably all right for now then. Yeah. But we should we should set up some kind of alert in case anybody does start a podcast and calls it I don't know Smith <laughs> and Jones chat about. <laughs> satire or something I mean, that's pretty extraordinary when you think that in all the people in all the world in all the podcasts that there's only one podcast about about how satire works mm, pretty but, niche i think um, world leading is probably what we are world beating yeah. boris johnson would say we're a world beating <laughs> podcast on the function of satire yeah how have we beaten the world we've beaten the world to the punch haven't we there's no <laughs> we've beaten the world to punching up there's no one else there's nobody <laughs> like us shall we have a look at some of the lovely letters that we've been sent recently Yes, we should. Yes. Um, okay. And we should perhaps also say that these are, as you've already said, some of these letters are fictional, but the majority are real. They're ones mm. that have come into our satinomore at gmail.com inbox over the last 18 months. And some of them are actually from an event that we did online in March at the, as part of the York Literature Festival, which was called Talk About Satire. And we invited people to send us their comments and questions. And we didn't manage to get through all of them during the event. So some of them we'll be touching upon in this very episode. Okay. So. Dear Joe and Adam, I'm a married woman in my 60s and recently my husband told me that if I didn't become more satirical, he would leave me for his much younger girlfriend. He says I'm boring and unfunny and I'm happy to try to please him by being more satirical, but I just don't know how. Please can you help? And that's from Margaret Goff or Gow, is it, in Bournemouth? Very unusual spelling there of, of yeah. the name Goff. Um, well, there's a bit of a stain on whether where she's written that, so I'm not sure, not mm. sure quite what's gone on there with Margaret Goff from Bournemouth. Probably um, crying, probably crying because she can't satisfy her husband. Yeah. Who requires her to be satirical. I mean, well, it's a I very think, common problem, isn't it? It is. I think we need to really be asking some questions about why he doesn't understand satire. I mean, if if one of his favourite things is satirical women. How have they made mm. it this far into their marriage without her being able to to deliver? I mean, she could have tricked him into into marriage. I mean, they do get that with a lot of the young girls nowadays. They will they will do that. Um, they'll 
promise all kinds of satire and then sadly a lot of the young women now feel that you know once they've once they've managed to get married they don't need to make an effort to be satirical anymore no sorry chum you have to you have to make the effort you have to be satirical and maybe she needs to to look at look at what underwear she's wearing perhaps Mm. I mean it says here that she's boring and unfunny and maybe she is well, no, she, she says he says I'm boring and unfunny. And actually, if you, she set, she has sent in a picture, and if you have a look at that, she does look quite boring and unfunny. So I mean, what she's not, there's not much she can do about that. I mean, it's a it's a tricky one because if it is a tricky one, I don't know what satire we could advise that that would that, that he would appreciate. I mean, he's already maybe he's already found a younger more satirical girlfriend. Maybe yes. So perhaps Mr. Goff. Maybe. Um, Cut your losses, cut your losses, and uh, cock a cock a snook, and 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 leave old Margaret for your. Well, you know, if Margaret was a bit more open-minded and a bit less of a Karen. Then maybe mm-hmm. you could get in on this, spend some time with the younger girlfriend, pick up some satirical tricks from the new generation. Yeah, what sort of satirical tips would you recommend? Maybe she could just make fun of herself for being so boring and unfunny. Maybe she should try and be more boring and funny, but present it as an ironic frame. Um, as a satire on boring and old funny old women I don't think that's going to help her though I think I think she just needs to accept it that uh, the only way she's going to get to see any more of her husband is if she she can persuade them to be some kind of she needs to get up her game doesn't she yeah hope that helps Margaret they could be a thruple couldn't they a comedic (laughs) thruple and then she can make fun of him she can she can make fun of her so she all of her jokes could be at the younger woman's expense and then that would be feminist and the younger women could make it, yes, because I think, I think often there's nothing funnier than pitting women from slightly different generations against one another. And then, you know, lucky old, lucky old Mr. Goff could sit back and enjoy the sight of his two, his two mistresses um, kind of tearing each other down. I think that would be absolutely wonderful for him. Mm. Um, so she could, for example, accuse the younger girlfriend of being a snowflake, of being a millennial, uh, of being, uh, you know, of, of, uh, 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 of spending all her money on avocados or whatever it is they, whatever it is they do these days. And the younger girlfriend could could take her to task, as you say, for being for being a Karen. So um, she says Goff, but I wonder if her surname's actually Cooper. <laughs> Well, you you have to wonder, don't you? Perhaps that's uh, yes. Well, Margaret Goff, if you're listening, um, it's not funny to try and deceive us um, and to to use alter egos. Um, if you if you are in fact Margaret Cooper, then have a little word with yourself. Yeah, I don't know about you, Joe, but I feel quite uncomfortable giving that advice. <laughs> yes, it was awful, wasn't it? it Shall was we go bad. on to the next letter? Yes, and this is a real letter, isn't it? Would you like to read the letter out loud? Yes, okay. It's Scott from Australia. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do the accent. <laughs> I'm not going to do the across your podcast. Um, I'm not going to do the accent because uh, I wouldn't want to cause offence, but also I can't, I can't do it. So, mm-hmm. hi, Adam and Joe. I came across your podcast and was wondering if you ever do product reviews or influencer campaigns. We're an influencer marketing platform that helps connect small businesses and medium-sized brands with willing product reviewers across a variety of mediums and blogs. Reviewers are compensated monetarily and or with product by the brands they reach out, that reach out. For example, I imagine Shropshire Farm Foods. Yes. If you've made the transition from creative to creative influencer or 
If you haven't yet, but are interested in doing so, it will cost you nothing as an influencer, as we'd be very happy to have you in the family. In the family, um, So that's quite forward, a, isn't it? it is. Yeah. So uh, I was I was intrigued there until until he made it about joining his family, which uh, which uh, I don't like it when I don't like it when companies or institutions start to invite mm. you to join their family. And I mean, this is a funny letter to include because we talk about sponsorship all the time, don't we? Yes, and I think I think that makes it quite clear that Scott hasn't listened to the podcast as well. <laughs> Because yeah. not only is there no monetary value in it, um, we've taken the piss out of it because there's no chance anybody's seriously going to ask us to be a pair of influencers, is there? Uh, no, there's not. So so we, we joke about it, sat at our own expense, but also we do it as a roundabout way of, of just reminding everyone that we don't do this for money. Joe and I make, no, make nothing from this, uh, other than those quantifiable statistics that may or may not once one day be, be, we'd be able to use in the... Uh, research and evaluation framework and we Um, do it for the love of satire don't we yeah yeah and even if we were i think we do yeah we do do it for the love of satire we do it for the love of satire and for you know the extreme off chance that we might get more followers from doing this but i mean even if you were to go down the route of creative influencing it's quite hard to do it with integrity isn't it yeah so much of it comes across as either sycophantic, like you're begging for free stuff, or nepotistic, you're just doing a favour for a mate. And well, I can't speak for you, Joe, but you'll never catch me doing any of that, promoting any of my friends on this podcast. Mm. Yeah, and um, if you sign up to our Patreon, we've got a whole episode about why that is. Grania O'Hare, who is, I think we could reasonably describe her as a long-term friend of the podcast. She appeared on episode two of season one. Yeah, and she was there at Um, our conference, wasn't she? The first conference we organised together. She was, so all-round friend of the conference and good egg. She she emailed us at what what address? SatarNoMore at gmail.com. That's right. Yeah. And uh, she emailed us. This was very early on in lockdown. So you might need reminding of shows such as The Bachelor and um, Tiger King that were very, very big at the time. And I'm not going to read out the whole letter, but the point is, there are, how do you and do you want to and how would you satirise something absurd? And how would you satirise The Bachelor or Tiger King that everyone was hooked on in isolation? Do we, do we have any thoughts about that? So I'll, ju- I'll just read a little bit from the beginning. So the recent season of The Bachelor is so intensely problematic and frankly batshit, but it's one of my favourite terrible shows. Saturday Night Live have been doing parody sketches of The Bachelor for the last few weeks. And while these have a few well-observed jokes, I don't think they can ever fully get across how ludicrous a piece of television The Bachelor is. When you watch it religiously for a few seasons, you get to know all the tropes and nuances that make the show so singularly demented that it feels almost impossible to satirise effectively. Or perhaps that's something that's so absurd to begin with demands a satirical treatment with more depth than Saturday Night Live style gag. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think Grania's got a point. It's going to be a challenge, isn't it? I think the first thing you'd have to ask yourself before you try to satirise something like Tiger King or The Bachelor is what is what's precisely is the target that you're trying to yeah. satirise? Are you targeting the people in it yeah. who are real people, the show itself, or everyone for watching it? Yeah, or yeah, all the, the yeah, everyone and the way they watch it and the fan culture that arises mm. from it. So, I mean, I, I actually must be the only person left, the last man on earth, the last person on earth who hasn't actually seen Tiger King. Oh, it's uh, good. It's sort of like loosely based on Hamlet, but it's a cartoon. Hamlet, you say? Yeah. 
So is is like a father son like who's the, who is the um, seizing the, the reins of power? And um, but it's a Disney cartoon, Circle of Life. You if you really not seen it? I've seen Lion King. Circle, the Circle of Life. Yeah, I've seen Lion King. That. I've not seen Tiger King. Oh fuck! Yeah. 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 Tiger, no. Tiger King's um, about some one who owns a zoo or something, isn't it? Yes, that's right. And all, also, all of that was a joke. I have seen Tiger King. Ironically, I've never seen The Lion King. Oh, so b- between us, we've seen all of the large feline... <laughs> Kings. <laughs> the big cat. Have you seen Puma King? I haven't seen it, but uh, I imagine... There's yeah, a man with um, sort of second-tier trainers. Uh, and yet many tiers higher than any trainer I've ever bought. <laughs> makes sense. Um, so would you be making fun of the people in Tiger King, the, the premise of Tiger King... The potentially exploitative way in which Netflix have made the documentary, would you be satirising the fan culture around it? Would you be satirising the people's obsession with other people's lives? Would you be satirising the effect that this was a phenomena largely assisted by the fact that so many people were in isolation when it came out? I mean, what exactly do you want to do, Gronje? I think we need a little bit of clarity here about what the target is of your satire. Yeah, send us, send us a picture so we can get a fuller picture. Mostly what I've seen arise out of Tiger King is well people saying oh my god have you watched it it's insane it just gets crazier and crazier and the main thing that's come out that i've seen out of it is a meme that's not even really a satirical meme where people were just i don't know it seemed like it was just pictures of joe exotic saying that carol baskin is a bitch (laughs) right i'm I'm probably like oversimplifying it but in a way i guess that that is sort of all you can do with it tiger king and i i know you haven't seen it it's sort of difficult to even explain why you watch it or what is interesting about it and yet at the same time it obviously was back in March really compelling and um, and really really popular mm. and I I guess I don't know I, th- I suppose you've got what, to ask what, yourself what you be satirizing? yeah why why would, I think the way that it should work is you see something that you think is worthy of satire that needs lampooning or it needs to be rendered ridiculous for some kind of productive purpose but if it it doesn't sound to me like tiger king necessarily deserves to be satirized just for the sake of satirizing it Mm. you need you need to have a have a point first and then think of a way yeah but it but i like i suppose the point of the question is partly that you know whatever's going on whatever's big surely should and could be a target for satire right so if that's what everybody's doing there must be something about it and people do as as and granny kind of distinguishes between parody sketches which i think would be relatively easy to do of this and of the bachelor but i think the question that she asked in the last line perhaps something that's so absurd to begin with demands a satirical treatment with more depth than saturday night live Mm. style gags yeah is that's absolutely it isn't it yeah but what that satirical treatment would be yeah i just don't know but i think the idea of like the absurd and the fact that we're living in what one way of describing what we're living in might be is kind of absurd times and it's absurd tv for absurd times i think that's something that's going to come back in um some of the other questions later so i don't know normally the conclusion is you can't satirize this because it's just too awful or it seems too improbable but in this case, I think it is like you can't, it's difficult to satirise because it's... Yeah, like, you, need a, you need an angle. I mean, it's similar You've to... You've got to know what something is, haven't you, before you can satirise it. Sorry, yeah. I interrupted you. I was just going to say, it reminds me of the conversation we were having in the last lockdown roundup about um, 
and I ha I'm, I'm re reluctant to bring this up again because I, I said it so many times last time, but Space Force, oh. which is an attempt to satirise Donald Trump, who people often say is too ridiculous to satirise, and the way that they approach it is not to focus on Trump, but to focus on the people that his decisions impact upon. So maybe you could satirise The Bachelor or Tiger King by focusing on some other aspects, some other individual inside the phenomena. So... Carol Baskin. Yeah, or, uh, you know, the parents of these men who are on The Bachelor, or the parents of the women who are on The Bachelor, or the people behind the scenes who have to make all of that shit work. Wouldn't or, that be sort of awful, though? Well, you'd have to be a good... Oh, you'd... imagine... Imagine Joe Exotic's parents. I bet they're dire. What a pair of twats they must well, no, be. I was talking about The Bachelor then. You'd, be, you'd maybe shift it to the conversations they're having in behind the scenes in the, in the, the, the executive room where they're deciding to make Bachelor or mm. reacting to the statistics or what, what buttons are they trying to push? What products are they trying to sell? How is there a dissonance between the rhetoric you see in the main show and the sort of corporate speak behind the scenes? That might yeah. be yeah yeah that that would work or you could just keep on and on pulling at the the kind of joke that was funny once that you've got confused between the tiger king and lion king yeah that would be good too yeah that would be that well that brings us full circle of life doesn't it shall we have a look, a look at another letter a letter here from jezebel cockpurse who said said, said um, she tried to satire her boss but it didn't work. So I've actually, I've got the long letter here. Okay. Um, I'd be interested to see what you make of this. It says, hi there. I work in a call centre and my manager is a narcissist and a bully. She's hypercritical and a micromanager. A lot of things she criticises me for are nothing to do with my job. For example, she implied that I bought my second husband off of the internet and that my children hate me. One day she accused me of lying to cover up a mistake that she had made. So I decided to even the score with a little bit of satire. I printed off pictures of a pig and drew on a cartoon speech a cartoon speech bubble, adding the caption, Hello, I am the manager, oink oink, I'm a big dirty pig, and my name is, I'm not going to say the name. This was intended as a reference to Animal Farm, suggesting that my manager operates in much the same style as the corrupt pig Napoleon. Having listened to your podcast, I imagine that this form of visual satire might have the dual effect of promoting solidarity among my long-suffering colleagues, whilst also prompting my manager to reflect on her ineffective and inconsistent management style. Instead, I've been fired for bullying. What did I do wrong? Goodness me. Well, Jezebel, what a lovely name. Mm. And what, what was the surname there? Jezebel Cockpurse. Um, I think that's usually pronounced Copurse. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've only ever seen it written down in Evelyn yeah. Moore's novel, Scoop. I've never, right. seen, never seen a person with it in real life. Um, yeah. So, Jezebel Cockpurse. Goodness me, goodness me. What a, what a pickle. So, why wasn't it satire to put up a picture of a big fat pig and say well, how did she describe it it was a picture of a pig said and it said oink 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 hello i am a manager oink oink i'm a big dirty pig and my name is and then it had the name of the the manager well i think that could perhaps have been more subtle couldn't it and it could have perhaps drawn on some of if she could have perhaps got together a little a little list, a little kind of brainstorm um, of some of the phrases the manager habitually uses, for example. Mm -hmm. That okay. might have been more clever satire than saying, oink, oink, I'm a big dirty pig <laughs> and my name is whatever. Um, it's, it's a bit of a blunt instrument. It's a bit it? of a, I mean, it seems to me that it's not very literate what she's, or it's not literate enough. So, you know, a passerby who sees that picture 
I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why you shouldn't put up pictures criticizing anybody in the workplace, in your workplace. Um, but mm. if you're going to go down this route, I think it possibly needs to be more obvious that you're referring to, that it's an intertextual reference to Animal Farm, for example. So you could put a bowler hat on the pig or you could put, you know, stand it in front of a Soviet flag or something. Like they're just having a picture of a pig saying, I'm this person, looks like you're saying yes. there's some, that yes, it looks like you're making a... It's kind of showing it's working too much in the section of the satire that says, oink, oink, I am a pig. But it's also not showing it's working enough in yeah. that it doesn't obviously kind of draw on Animal Farm. It doesn't draw on anything particular about this woman. And goodness, I mean, she, she sounds like a sounds like an absolute nightmare. Sounds like one of these women you get who, um, who for, for whatever reason, goodness me, I don't know, um, just become bitches. I, I, do we know if the manager looked like a pig? Does she enclose a picture of the manager? There's no picture of the manager. Um, is there a picture of Jezebel Cockpurse? There is Cockpurse. not, no, suspiciously not um so i don't know why she's hiding that from us i don't know why she's frustrating but i mean the, the problem is if you put a picture on the wall of a pig and, and put someone's name on it and say you know this is the person even if that person doesn't look like a pig it looks like you're saying they are so uh, i don't think it's obviously enough satire is it it's no. mainly it's an insult it's you're an saying insult. she is a pig that's not very, not very clear, is it, no it's got a lot i think if it if if it had worked, it, it it would be satire if she was saying this person's management style is similar to a communist pig in George Orwell's Animal Farm, and then that invited some critique of the management style. I just want to say I wouldn't advocate doing this in the workplace. Full stop. No, but but without, if you are going to do it, do it right. If you are going to go down that route, do it right. Without without that working out, as you say, it looks like you're just insulting them. The yes, yeah, so I think what you would need to do if you were hell-bent on this course of action would be to have a picture of a pig with the boss's face on and then it would need to say something like Jezebel Cockpurse has burnt down the windmill. She's turned Boxer into glue. Yes. Or, yeah. you know, or just, you could even, you don't even need a picture of a pig, you could just have a post that said the manager is always right, couldn't you? Or something like that. Yeah. But what's, what she's done here is that that hasn't, that isn't clear and instead what it looks like is just an ad hominem attack on this person's, person's physical appearance. So she needs something more specific about the person and more specific allusion to Animal Farm. For yeah, that to work. Sorry, have a little think, although it's too late, you've lost your job and it's unlikely you'll get a new one. Get down to I've checked out. We've got another letter here. Hope that, hope that helps Jezebel. From Matt Wilson and it says, Hi Adam and Joe. Long time listener, first time caller. When I discuss politics with my friends, it seems they all know the figures of fun who we are allowed to ridicule. Orange-haired buffoon Trump, blustering simpleton Johnson, rubber-faced haunted child Gove. However, they seem entirely ignorant of any political views that these people hold and resort to ad hominem satirical attacks. Satirical is in inverted commas there. Is satire merely a tool given by politicians to allow us to feel like we're winning a game that they have no interest in? What do you think? I think that's a very good question from a very good man. That's uh, Matthew Wilson, who is actually the guitarist of a very good band called Pixie and the Gypsies, who have a new album uh, any day now caught in the rain and Matthew Wilson actually did the transitions in our last episode he, he wrote as the little uh, Adam and Joe's oh. lockdown roundup song um, which which was a which was lovely 
Um, but this is a this is a good question. So suppose it calls into question the function of satire, the effectiveness of satire. Does satire make a difference, or is satire just a bone that politicians can throw the public to distract themselves? So we're all sat at home playing with the bone that they've thrown us, and we're not actually enacting change, critiquing them, or in Matty's account here, we don't know anything about their politics. All we know is what they look like and what they what why mm. why generally we think they're stupid. So they um, present themselves as a oven ready caricature. Yes, exactly. Yeah, oven ready, world beating caricatures. Yes, I think that yes. certainly in the case of Boris Johnson, he's nurtured. He's he's really fanned that flame, hasn't he? He's he's made himself into a chimera. Yeah, he's 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 done everybody's job for them, hasn't he? It's like here you go. You can have the Etonian accent. You can have the messy blonde hair. Mm. You can have the doesn't know how many children he's got. None of that lands on me it doesn't matter i know those things about myself anyway there's nothing else mm. so knock yourselves out saying that i go wah, 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 and i've got lots of babies yeah it's nothing so is satire merely a tool given by politicians to allow us to feel like they're winning a game they have no interest in i would say that it has the potential to be and certainly can be but I wouldn't say it's merely that. I'd say that, there's, mm. that it can be a lot more. I think that's a... And, and again, it comes down to the quality and the effectiveness of the satire, doesn't it? Like bad satire, cheap satire, Twitter satire, amateur satire, popular satire. A lot of things that, are sat that say the satire that they aren't can certainly lead mm. into that dynamic. But I think careful, effective and successful satire won't. But I suppose the main thing is um, people should uh, look up the band. They should, yeah. He's a good friend of mine, and that band will be available on iTunes. And uh, the band will be available. Sorry, that album will be available. Sorry, he's a good friend of mine, and that album you can pre-order it on iTunes. It's coming out any day now. And there's also a campaign where you can donate money to help them release a vinyl copy of the album. So, as I said earlier, we'll never promote any. Enough. Stop it. So another one here, Lucy on Twitter said, in all of your research on the history of satire, which finding slash nugget of information mm. has surprised you the most? Well, I think maybe it was that time when we looked up what a buffoon, what the history of the buffoon mm. and realised that the buffoon is the, like etymologically or historically, is the, like literally the opposite of the satirist. Yes. And then you went on to to write about that didn't you we did we discovered it together in the booth and then i wrote it up as a paper and did it at ucl <laughs> so yeah this is the um the definition of satire or the most common definition a definition is the use of humor irony exaggeration or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or stupidity vices, and vices. Yes. yeah and the definition of a buffoon in the oxford english dictionary is a man whose profession is to make sport by low jests and antic postures. That's what Samuel Johnson said in the 18th century. A comic actor, a clown, a jester, a fool, a man that practices indecent raillery. So a buffoon is someone who relishes stupidity and performs stupidity. Mm. And a satirist is someone who skewers and critiques and ridicules stupidity. And yet Boris Johnson plays the buffoon, but constantly tries to justify his actions as acts of satire, which seemed like a fascinating paradox that I managed to milk for an entire paper twice in fact because i did it again but uh... you're uh, unstoppable aren't you shall we have another a look at another letter yes let's so we've got a letter here from mark t yates yep um 
and I'll, I'll, I think I can probably read all of this because I'm quite good at reading. Dear Adam and Joe, I hope this email finds you well. Why does Adam always talk about the 18th century? Can't he just give it a rest? He's so dated and not relevant. I'm joking, but as teachers, we need to remember that our students are now mostly, but not always, individuals who were born and raised in the 21st century. While my pop culture references are growing more dated with every passing year, using steps to talk about tragedy doesn't quite pack the comedic punch that it once did when I, quite tragically, have to explain who steps are, I wanted to ask, how can we teach satire in the 21st century and how might we show the continuing relevance of satire to our students? Where might students have already encountered satirical content within contemporary pop culture and how can this contemporary content be used to teach students about satire? Kind regards, Mark. Okay, well, this is something that's come up a few times actually, isn't it? And we did talk about this on Twitter at the time as well, didn't we? Yeah. Um, yeah, so where might they have encountered it and how can we use it? Mark the week? Yeah, well, this is, this is it, isn't it? When we ask. Well, you, this happened to you, didn't it? You asked your students recently. Oh, yes. And I'll tell you what they said. Uh, I had two groups on the same afternoon. No, actually, I was talking about comedy. But when I asked them both what they thought the most, the dominant mode of comedy was at the moment, they unilaterally and rapidly said it's memes. But not the kind of memes that I necessarily know or have talked about, right? So that didn't mean that I could be like, oh, yeah, like, I, yeah, I know memes. And um, what about those feral hogs? Huh? They, part of the reason they like memes, one of them explicitly said, it's stuff your mum wouldn't get. Like, she won't have heard of it. She won't understand why it's funny. That is part of the appeal. So in a way, for Mark Yates, problem is, is even more intractable, isn't it? Because it's not just about finding out what they've heard about, it's about not alienating them by thinking you understand the things that they know or making an incursion into what might be not for not for everyone i'm not sort of saying students are a homogenous mass who all find the same things funny and who all even like the same memes i'm sure there's plenty of divergence in there but if part of the appeal is this is for us it's not for you then that's quite difficult isn't it but then again everyone loves the simpsons surely don't they yeah. and I mean, I, that's we should, satire in it we should do a whole episode one day about teaching satire but uh, in my experience in with when teaching satire but teaching literature generally i try and unpack and explain the thing we're looking at and then it's usually the students who suggest the parallels and it happens on my 18th century module i'll say you know pope this is doing it this way and then sort of like, oh that reminds me of something else not going out yeah but I, I think this this letter does raise the fact that it's even more complicated than trying to keep up in an ever-changing landscape of popular culture. That's more complex than ever because students don't necessarily, they're not necessarily limited to what came out this year, are they? That, you know, at what we watch and what we listen to because we do it via Netflix or via Spotify isn't just, we were more bound to the moment in which we existed yeah. because we had, we, we just were only allowed to like things if they were on top of the pops or if they were on yeah. telly that day. And students now have a more kind of temporally diverse engagement with popular culture. But that said, perhaps there's something about satire that means you want to kind of gather it to yourself and you want it to be a private joke and you don't want your lecturers any more than your mum to, to get it because it's for you. Yeah. Don't worry about it, Mark. Just keep saying, just, they don't know about steps. That's their problem. So they're here, Mark, to learn. They want to know what yeah. steps is. It's your job to tell them what steps is. That's why they're here. <laughs> Philip Consway, a real mm -hmm. person who sent us a long letter at our email address, satire no more at gmail.com. And this is a very long letter and it's very 
Jet, like, and this is no, this is, I'm serious here. It's a fascinating, really fascinating letter that engages very deeply with a lot of the things that we've discussed and shares a lot of observations <laughs> and ideas. And I think is beginning to articulate in a very really convincing way its own theory of satire. So mm. we can't read all this out, but what I propose we do is we contact Philip and ask him if he minds us putting this on the blog because I think mm. we'll be interested to read all of this. But there's a bit where he says what the question is, isn't it? Yeah. So he mm. says, Dear, dear Meta Satirists, uh, I want to say that I'm enjoying your podcast very much and then he draws close to the question so he says so the question becomes if satire has lately suffered diminution or at least the uncomfortable alteration of some kind what has it been displaced into what if the things it was doing before are still being done but differently in a way that aren't that we aren't altogether prepared to recognize that would require us to look at the past of satire differently in order to recognize what's going on so is it not a case of satire being dead but more a case of satire being dispersed into new and different forms potentially hybrid forms mm. so that that work is still being done but just in ways that we as historians of satire might not immediately recognize what do you think about that joe what has it been displaced into? Where, where has it gone? I don't know. In the last episode, we talked about how the traditional forms were becoming destabilised across satire news and journalism, weren't we? Where we talked mm. about, you know, have I got as few as doing the work of an opinion piece, whereas yeah. Good Morning Television was doing work that might more comfortably be situated very broadly in the field of satire. So, so I don't know is the answer, other than I think it's something to be alert to and that we should perhaps be mindful that the categories we're talking about are unstable. And also, something can be satirical without being a sustained work of satire as well. So you need yes. a satirical moment in a text or in a TV show or in real life. I mean, he also says another hypothesis might be that satire hasn't so much become impossible in its critical abs abs aspects as it has become superseded in its entertainment potential. One can still satirise such things, but it's likely to be crap, banal entertainment. So you can still do it, but because satire has become something we perhaps expect to be more accessible and more popular yeah we don't expect satire that that bites and stings so much we expect it to be and it is i think crap banal entertainment he suggests i think there's something in that is in that the things that are labeled satire or things that label themselves as satire here's the bbc's new satirical roundup show or here's yeah. netflix's new satirical sitcom about space force like they're often the least interesting and least effective works of satire i think at the moment if something's positioning itself as and it's saying, hello, I'm a work of satire. Whereas, mm. you know, our, our friend Andrew Doyle, for instance, like it, you would, the whole point is that you would encounter Titania McGrath out of context and have to think about it. It's not, apart from when he comes on our podcast and we specifically ask him to articulate his work within a frame of satire, he's not saying all the time, here's some satire, is it? It's just sort of yeah. a satirical project or a project that has a satirical facet to it. Because when you do put Nish Kumar on a, on a panel and, and call it the satire week or whatever, it, you sort of know that it's not going to be... Yeah. Is it that it's going to be comfortable, isn't it? It's going to be a sort of yeah. gentle, late-night family roundup. Well, even the idea of a satirical roundup is kind of internally contradictory, isn't it? Because satire shouldn't round things up and tie them up in a neat bow and finish off the week for you and make it all make sense. Yeah. Can you have a satirical roundup, really? It, that implies something finished and satisfactory and conclusive about what you're doing, which surely in its... It, in its real form isn't what satire is aiming to do. It could be a satire flare-up, I mean, satire prod. This is maybe 
a digression that we can cut but the other day I was talking to my dad and he was asking he'd been listening to the podcast and he was saying that he'd he was watching a YouTube video of a some expert some some person who has a craft and he was and the person was saying it annoys me that whenever I make these videos people queue up in the comments to tell me that I don't know what I'm doing but I've been doing this my entire life my entire career has been doing this job why do these people think that they know better and my dad said is that what satire is is satire just people who don't know better queuing up to criticize things that they don't understand and i said i don't think it is because satire isn't about necessarily criticizing things for the sake of it it's about asking questions isn't it mm. so and and i think um, having that conversation really helped focus in my mind for a moment what satire can do in that it po as you say it disrupts it poses questions it doesn't have to have the answer because it's asking questions and it doesn't necessarily have to be criticism for the sake of it because if the person who is the victim of the satire the target can say well, actually, no, it's like that because of this. Then the satire yeah. has failed as a piece of, as, as a, as in a way, but it's also achieved its goal because it's got the answer it was looking for. Yeah, and you aren't necessarily, although I know some of the 18th century definitions would suggest that you are, you aren't necessarily doing satire to the target, right? You're not saying, look, Boris Johnson, I've satirised you, do better. You're doing it to, for everyone else yeah. that isn't your Boris Johnson to see what's going on. Do we have another letter? At Pixie Gypsy 88 says, in a world where we are endlessly told to be kind, are the general public losing their taste for satire? Um, yes, I think they probably are. Yeah, I, I think satire so. isn't kind, is it? No, it's not. It's not supposed to be kind. It's supposed to raise uncomfortable questions, as we've discussed previously. In a situation where any kind of discomfort is to be profoundly avoided I think satire will struggle because it, it's not it's not kind is it you know when I think of some of the earliest satire that I watched like Brass Eye although people leapt on it and as though what Chris Morris was trying to satirise was for example the idea of paedophilia which he wasn't and what he but what he was actually saying was in some ways no less uncomfortable which is some of you are idiots whose fear of this is making you stupid and celebrities will endorse anything for the right amount of money and you are you people are mostly stupid and credulous and wrong that's not kind is it and i think increasingly there's an emphasis on the effect of an utterance rather than the intention isn't there so if you're wounded by satire there's perhaps less credence to exploring why the satire happened or what the point it was trying to make is if it upset you then it needs to be cancelled or if it just seems mean if it seems like it might have the capacity to upset anyone then that's not okay so maybe i mean maybe we need to like cut ourselves a break here because we're all perhaps in a bit of a fragile state of mind at the moment maybe this is in some ways the time to be kind but i think it's significant as well that gypsy pixie 88 has asked if the general public are losing their taste for satire and i don't necessarily know if the general public are i don't know i don't know any of the general public actually <laughs> no, have to, let, us know, let us know on the podcast send us an email at satire no more at gmail.com i think yeah. certainly the internet the prevailing attitudes that the dominant views on the internet are not going to be compliant with satire as it has traditionally existed. But I don't well, know. Well, not that it challenges anything that's not a very, very easy target. Yeah. So I guess we'll just have to watch. But it's a very interesting question. Thank you very much. At Gypsy Pixie 88. <laughs>
So one of my relatives who is long time but intermittent listener to the podcast. So she's just caught up on some recently. So she's just listened to the Andrew Doyle episode and therefore also the the Christmas episode. So I wanted to mention both of those because I think we, we kind of touched on this before, but also is possibly a rare listener to have listened to the Christmas episode and have taken anything from it other than the fact that we were being massively self-indulgent and mucking about. Do you remember, Adam, I don't know if you can cast your mind back here, where you said that there's an element of kind of hyper-reality about Christmas, that yes. it's, it's kind of constructed, we have certain expectations of it, and it's not quite real life, but rather it's made up of signifiers of, of what Christmas is meant to be and simulation. Do you remember when you talked about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that therefore it's a fruitful topic for satire because there's so many disjunctions between our expectations and our lived experience. Yeah, and uh, she said something which I, I thought was really interesting because when this when this relative was a bit younger, I remember came the concept of hyper-reality came up in conversation and I sort of did my best garbled explanation of, of what that is and talks about Disneyland and so on and she found that concept quite interesting and has, has like come back it's come up in conversations a few times since this this isn't the relative who's doing English Lit at university in fact it's um, it's the other relative but she's she's always been like quite interested in this concept and she said when Adam was talking about hyper-reality it made me think that the situation we're in now is kind of hyper real there was an element of hyper reality about lockdown which was there was a kind of external projection of lockdown that was about like certain signifiers and some pretense perhaps at a shared experience we're all in this together we all we're all doing clapping for the nhs we're all at home we're all working in our jogger bottoms we're all worried about the same things we're all buying loo roll and whatever so there was a kind of sometimes not entirely truthful but attempt to talk as though we were all sharing something and now I think that's even more interesting as lockdown probably temporarily eases and we keep hearing phrases like the new normal or more even more interestingly lots of talk about returning to quotes something approaching normality right and that's constructed of like phrases like oh I'm sure lots of us can't wait to get down to our local pub for a pint with friends now popping down your local for a pint Whilst, whilst I'm sure people do do it, it's not part of probably the majority of people's weekly experience. Like having a local that you pop to for a pint. Like, yes, if you live in Ambridge, yeah. most of us don't really have that do we but it's we're being told like you know oh only only a day to wait until you can pop down your local for a pint or you know looking forwards to sharing drinks or a meal or to getting back to some form of normality and what we're being invited back into is kind of half made up of a participatory agreement on what life used to be like right this these are the things we missed this is what it was like this is this is what it will look like and feel like and this is tick tick off this list of things that that you will now be able to do that perhaps seeks to gloss over the fact that none of them will be anything like what they were like before the concept of normality and and reality are really interesting at the moment so like yesterday i walked past not my local because I'm well actually I have got a local but I've never been in it it looks horrible but I walked past a pub and there was that pub smell there's not particularly a nice smell like of cleaning fluid and and, and beer and so on but it's very evocative smell right that reminds you of 
of pubs but then you walk past the door and there's like a table in the front of it that's like please wait here to be seated and you'll be shown to your table by someone in a mask who'll bring you your beers over there's this weird kind of relationship between what's what's real and what's not real what's normal and what's not normal all of that is to say if we're existing at the moment in some form of hyper reality we've often talked about how can you satirize things that are really shit or really disturbing or seem improbable but can you satirize hyper reality and she also said which i'd forgotten saying that the first night when everyone was home because both both of them came home like early on lockdown you what sorry both of you my relatives yeah both my relatives very early on and so like the cupboards were the cupboards were fairly full because i've been trying to like you know get get enough food in and enough loo roll and everybody everybody being in the house and everything being closed outside and there's nothing you can do apart from eat food together and perhaps go for a walk i'd forgotten that i said this but she said remember when you said that first night welcome to shit christmas everyone and there is there is a kind of overlap there isn't there of the hyper reality of christmas and the hyper reality of quasi post lockdown yeah especially yeah. when so many people ended up like your relatives suddenly being at their familial home unexpectedly people i mean that was one of the things that i found really quite striking and endearing walking around on my lockdown walks when we were only allowed out once a day was how many clearly adult children you saw walking around with their parents <laughs> you know, people and it was well, it did tend to be women that i saw who were clearly yeah. in their mid-20s 30s walking around with their mums which yeah. uh, which, I thought which was they won't cool. have done since they were like 11. well i think your relative there has made an absolutely that's just a fantastic observation that it made me think of lots of things which probably we could talk about for hours but the first thing is when we were in proper lockdown like when we were only allowed once a day something that's striking about that is that our entire perception of what was happening in the world came through media didn't it like who yeah. what you'd seen on news what was happening in the briefing what was happening on social media so you potentially getting a more distorted view of the world so your entire experience of your entire lived experience is mediated to you more than usual because you, can only, mm. you can't leave your house. But then I thought it was interesting the first couple of weeks talking to my friend Matty, I remember we talked about this, the things that you take for granted as knowing in, re in normal reality in the before times, suddenly you question. I mean, really early on, do you remember when everyone was policing each other about uh, allegedly reporting each other for going outside and there was a lot of questions as to whether or not you should drive to go and exercise. And mm. I remember my friend Matt pointed out that when you think about how many people live in a street, you know, if you've got a house with 20 streets in it and every house has got between two and five people in, there's loads of people everywhere. And if they can only go, they can only travel within a mile of their house, you are going to have people everywhere. So suddenly you realise, as lonely as it can feel in a city sometimes perhaps, that you're surrounded by people. And then, you know, it might make you reflect even before the lockdown, to what extent did you really know things and to what extent was everything mediated through the media the same as in lockdown? So there's that. And then yeah. the point that you just made there really well is that now that we are returning to what's being optimistically referred to as the new normal, there is maybe more of a desperation to imagine that things are fine, to imagine yeah. that going to a restaurant, yeah, there's a perfect screen between me and the person next to me, but you know, let's imagine that it is fine, which again is something that we all do before. That's the whole point of hyper reality, isn't it? That's yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. the idea of the, you know, the burger in your hand isn't the burger in the photograph. It's just yeah. that now it's much more obvious. So I think there's loads of room for satire and the way to oh, do it. I thought it, there wasn't any room for it. No, I think there is. I think there's loads of room oh. to satirise this, this misguided, this self-dissimulating, obfuscating belief that things are good again by just showing how shit they are. And yeah. I was thinking about the recent issue of Private Eye had a, had a cartoon where there's two people 
uh, there's someone in the hairdressers and they're like oh it's so so glad to be back to normal and they're one of many plastic boxes and the person's basically in a full environment hazmat suit so just trying yeah. to stop just trying to remind people of what the world is really like and not what they're wishing it's like i think yeah. it's a source of satire that's why i don't want to go and do any of that stuff mm. to go to the pub and go out for a meal not because i'm scared of getting the virus although obviously i don't want it i don't think i'm immune to it or whatever but because i don't want to accept that that is reality now mm. and that that this is anything approaching normality. So by holding off on engaging in it, I guess I'm indulging the fantasy that we'll ever get back to actual normality as it used to be. And by disengaging from what's being offered at the moment, you, you kind of hold that hope out, don't you? But I'm not sure with how much reason. Yeah, I think, anyway. things, I think things will get back to normal. So a relative of mine now, a parent of mine that isn't my mom, he sent me a message where he said, I've listened to season one of your podcast. I liked Helen, Helen Williams, and I liked Wendy, Wendy McGlashan. Joe is very endearing. It seems quite 18th century heavy, though. When will Joe get to talk about the 19th century? Also, a lot of satire seems to be critical, but presents no will to action. Is satire just whinging? I think that's a really good observation. I the think bit that I was endearing. That's a good observation. Yeah. Very astute man, this parent that's not your mum. He is. He, um, he needs to get into season two where we do reduce the 18th century to just one corner. Fucking goes on a bit though, doesn't it? It does. It does do. <laughs> one dusty old corner. That is the bit that he really needs to get to is when I do the 18th century corner and show that it doesn't have to be shit. That's true. So hang in there, Dad, if you can. Hang on for the 18th century disease corner. And there is, there's like the odd little smattering of 19th century things, but... Yeah. Um, um, is satire just whinging? I think it sometimes. has potential to be, yeah. Um, but I think effective satire is questioning, isn't it? But, but that's a good point. I think he's right. It doesn't present a will to action necessarily. It sort of hopes that it'll prod other people and then they'll do the action. Which is not without value. No, but it can be. But yeah, satirists aren't activists, are they? No, sacktivists. That's all we've got time for. What a shame. What a shame. Yes. Um, so what are you going to do after this, Joe? I'm going to I'm going to go and see Mahmoud and get my fingernails tattooed on. Take a tip from your book, Adam, and uh, get, yes. my, get my fingernails tattooed. Get a little a little mani pedi. Very good. And uh, yeah, that's very very yeah. sensible. Of course. Yes. What about you? Nothing. I'm not doing anything. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not doing anything either, really. Um, <laughs> it's this dratted virus that we've got now, isn't it? Goodness me. Yes, goodness, goodness me. This this ridiculous, ridiculous virus. Do you think it's real? I don't think it's real. I think it's a 5G Hawaii Hey Chinese conspiracy. But uh, a 5G what conspiracy, Joe? Hawaii Hey, the company who make the telephones. They've just they've just jumped. You mean to Huawei. Huawei, yeah, it's a Huawei conspiracy to try and get everyone to have 5G so that they can influence us even more. That's not real. I don't think that's true. No. Um, I think there is a virus and I think we should all be very careful. Yeah, <laughs> very, very alert. Yeah. So uh, that's been fun, hasn't it? That has been good. I hope listeners enjoyed that bonus episode where we've been going through some of the fictional and real responses to the podcast all the people have given us a yell if you too would like to give us a yell there's lots of ways you can do it you can hit us up on socials uh, on twitter mm -hmm. at satire no more on instagram at talk about satire or by email satire no more at gmail.com but that's that's it for this time join us again when we'll be finally releasing our interview with sharon lockyer well, about we'll time yeah we'll be talking about comedy comedy studies satire the relationship between comedy and satire we'll be talking about brass eye we'll be talking about 
a fence and where to draw the line. And we'll also be talking draw about... Draw the line and then put the fence on the line. And also, a common theme on this podcast, you know, has Twitter ruined satire? So lots, lots to discuss. But I suppose for now, uh, is there anything else you want to say, Jesse? Adam? Goodbye, listeners. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, and uh, sit up. Shut up. And stay alert. Stay alert. And eat my satire. And mine. Bye. Bye.